This is Keith Price's Curtain Call. Laugh, make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? My grandpa said go out and tell them a joke. But give them plenty of are back. Yes, make ladies and gentlemen, it is happening. I'm very excited about this show today. This is going to be one of the, I guess it's the premiere launch. Now, some of you may, who are following the podcast, you know that I am a comedian, and you know that I have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of friends who are comedians, as well as these comedians are also actors. And so I had this really hard dilemma when I first started to try to do this in bringing comedians onto the Curtain Call podcasts, because people were like, well, comedians are not the same as Jess's performance to do musical theater. And I, I realized... <laughs> That as comedians, we do monologues every chance that we get when we're on stage. Some five minutes, some ten minutes, some hour. And that makes us an actor because some days we don't feel like doing that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? We don't feel like being funny. But guess what? We are a performer and that's what we have to do. We have to act funny worst case scenario. And so I I had to figure out how I was going to do this. It's like I wanted to have a way to introduce you guys who love the theater as much as I do to these wonderful comedians who are absolutely hilarious and fun in all of their own own ways and to let you know that they are also actors and they're also performers that do acting. And so to exclude them or to try to separate everything, you know, it seems really ridiculous to me. And so now <clears throat> my first guest on the return of the Lavender Laugh Lounge series here on The Curtain Call. How about that? Don't you love the graphic? Yes, I do. Shout out to Yvonne Mojica. It's fabulous. She's giving I like me the f- black hands that are pulling the curtains Ex- to the side. Because it's me! It's true to life. <laughs> it's me. It's very true to life. And it is so wonderful because my first in the new relaunch of the Lavender Laugh Lounge is an old comedian friend who I have to do some looking up on him because... It, <laughs> I've been kicking around for so goddamn long. She's been around. This one's been around. And what's been very interesting is is that when we first had our first, very first interaction, um, I did not like him. Hated her. Hated this bitch. Hated her. And, you know, the thing is, is that the hate was not because of anything else, but I remember standing, we were in, we were around the corner. We were at, at Caroline's here in New York. And this young comedian at the time, his name his name is still the same, but at the time he was new to me. Adam Sank, ladies and gentlemen, is here with me. Hi, Adam. Hi. My name at the time was Claudette Colbert. <laughs> he was Claudette Colbert. Going for something different. <laughs> he wanted to change it up. He wanted people to remember him. Yes. And Adam and I were in a comedy show that was at Caroline's, and it was like a, a gay comedy showcase during Pride Week or something. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I had been doing a show regularly in the East Village, and you were still, I think you were still, you were like hitting the scene in a way that people were starting to talk about you. And <laughs> and this queen, for the promo shot that they did for this particular event, sent a varied number of shots. And one of them is him sitting in a chair naked holding his stuff. <laughs> As one does. As one does for the comedy show. And... <laughs> I remember when the thing came out. I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be in this show. And I opened up the thing. It's like, who is this? <laughs> Why is he holding his balls? This is a comedy show, right? And so, of course, you know me, because I'm a, I was just very like, oh, this bitch. 
Who is she? And then it was like, I remember walking into the green room and I heard you say, I don't know why they chose that particular photo out of all of the pictures that I sent them. And I was just like, this queen doesn't realize that gay men respond to nudity. <laughs> I, I think I was. I think I. I, but you were I knew very. very new. I think I knew very well mm-hmm. that they were going to use that. They were going to use that shot. And by the way, that shot. I. I had very early on this um, kind of mini stalker, who was a photography student. And I don't know where he saw me online or in real life, but he was like, "I would like to sh- to do a photo shoot with you." Mm-hmm. And at that point. You know, you're like Coco and say no to anyone. I was totally Coco, (laughs) even though he was (laughs) he was younger than I was. But yeah, I was like, (laughs) basically, because he showed up, he put very strange makeup on my eyes, like Mm -hmm. heavy, dark, like looked like I either like had a heroin problem or had just been punched a lot, you know. And then asked me to take my clothes off. And at that time, it was the one moment of my life that I was in truly great shape. I was 33. I just. I mean, and that's the thing. As shady as I wanted to be, I was like, damn, he was cute though. Thank you. I just broken up from a four year relationship. And I was like, it was sort of like my revenge hotness that I was going to do. And I was eating Atkins Mm -hmm. and going to the gym every day. I was bartending. I had no real day job. So I had all Mm -hmm. this time to work out. And uh, he took a lot of provocative pictures of me not completely naked mm-hmm. i mean you never saw my dick or my ass but you saw me in my underwear mm-hmm. the one you're talking about i had my hands neatly folded over my penis yes he does and if you go to adamsank.com <laughs> and on you, there you scroll down in the photographs you're gonna see that picture it's of there him. it's down there so i knew what was what was up but i think i was embarrassed because i knew that like that had nothing to do with stand-up mm-hmm. and i was trying to i don't know not come off like a so that's probably that's probably why I was saying to you guys like oh I can't believe they use this I'm so embarrassed and so I I was full of shit but my intentions were like I want you to respect my craft and what many people do not know is that at this particular time this was in the mid two thousands the the gay comedy scene was kind of exploding at that point where we started to have lots of comedians who were finally out on stage. And it was fun for me because when I remember when I started, there were not, there certainly weren't any black gay men on stage no. going, I'm gay. I was, I think at the time when I first started, I was it. And then eventually people who were closeted started to step the, you know, you see that. It was like me and I think Robin Cloud, the only lesbian. She was just, me and her just like, we gay! And I feel like on the West Coast, Bruce Daniels. Yeah. Who came out first on stage? You or him? That I don't know. I feel like I came out on stage in like 1996, 97, when, when I, I first 14. got to New York. Shut up. When I first got to New York. You see, this is why we had a thing. Um, <laughs> no, but that, then I think you were the first. And I was like the I was like one of the first that I know of. And then certainly the first to have a show. That yeah. was the thing for sure. And so I remember seeing you and I kept thinking, it's like, why is this? Oh, I don't get this. It's like, why? You know, the, that rule of thumb that they always say, you never pull your pants down on stage. And I remember <laughs> thinking at that time that... That was so not the way to do this. Oh, God. And it's like, but then it was, but you look good. So, you know what, you, you know, and it's all about getting seen, getting paid and being, you know, being out there. And at, and I think that the part that I had a hard time with is because I felt like you, you jumped the gun because you weren't out there enough, comedically speaking, to right. be able to be that out there. Well, that's, you know? ex- that's exactly right. And I paid the price for that. Mm-hmm. I, I got a lot of buzz um, before I was ever 
ready yeah. or good enough. I mean, you know, people who work in this business know that it takes years to be a, a decent stand-up comedian. Right. Um, well, it takes sometimes years decades. To, it takes years for you to figure out who you are That's right. when you're on stage. Find your voice, figure out what jokes, what kind of jokes you mm-hmm. should be telling that fit with your persona and, and who that persona is. It takes years. I was able at that time to do a really good 10 minutes. Yeah. I had a good 10 minutes, which yeah. a lot of new comics do. Yeah. But I was getting booked for stuff where they were like, you're going to do 45. And mm-hmm. so that meant 10 minutes that I knew was good, that I had done mm-hmm. over and over and over again, and 35 minutes of brand new material <laughs> that was underdeveloped and bad. <laughs> I didn't know how to do crowd work. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do when you start T- tanking. I just was like, full steam ahead. I'm going to keep his energy up. And, you know, people were just staring at me mm-hmm. in this silent room. So <laughs> I feel like, oh no. I'm not sorry that I sent in, you know, slutty pictures of myself. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry that I, uh, you accept- that I said yes to gigs that I wasn't ready for. Yeah. Someone said to me years later that the biggest mistake new comics make is they say yes to things that, that, that they're not ready for. They're right. so eager, and it's like, you're going to pay me $1,000 and fly me to Cancun and have mm-hmm. me perform for an Atlantis vacation? How am I going to say no to that? But I should have said no. I shouldn't have even submitted to them. Right. I was not ready. And the result was I was never asked back. Yeah. Because of you, course. how do they say you, you, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression? That's right. And, you know, it's frustrating as hell, but uh, I learned that the hard way. So I do think that having the show, I had a weekly show at Therapy, as you know. Mm, yes, the Electroshock Comedy Therapy, yeah. For four or five years, and and I think that's what really built my comedy chops, because it was a very tough room. Yes. Filled with <laughs> gay men, <laughs> drunk, drunk, loud, cunty gay men. On a Sunday men, night. On a Sunday night at 10 o'clock. And... I learned how to control a room and yeah. how to do crowd work. And, and and it forced me to write new material every, every fucking week. week, too. Every week. I, I You know, the funny thing is, is I remember when I was doing the, the show, the Starlight Lounge, that the one thing that I knew every week, as the especially as the host, every week, I better read a newspaper. Yep. I better, like... Watch my, you know, because my thing used to be, I used to do the weekly soap opera updates. That was my thing because I was all about all my children. And that always, and it always works because of the way that I would present it. But it forced me to have to think about things differently. It forced you to have to read the paper and be more up on top of stuff, which is what you're supposed to do as you learn to the, the art of comedy. Because that's where you get all of that stuff first until, right. uh, while you're living. And then the life experience winds up matching the things that you learn as you're reading. And then... What I'm finding now is that I can talk about stuff and know that I'm going to find something funny to say before it's over. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. You'll, like you'll find the joke while you're up while there. I'm up there talking. Not that that's a good way to do it, but it's sort of like that is also those moments when you feel like you're dying. Mm-hmm. If you can just you know, there's a lifeline in this room somewhere. I can find it if I if I work hard enough. And that's the thing that comes from hosting, and that's the thing that comes from being able to do regular kinds of anything just in life you know what i mean yeah and so you know so one of the reasons why i have adam here is because adam was so kind when he had his podcast to bring me up and it was like and i think before then i had wanted to have you because i wanted to reboot this whole series and and bring it back and i couldn't figure out you know the logistics and everything and i finally now have it to the point where i can do what i want how i want it in a fabulous studio, by the way. Thank you. Here. We're sitting in this. It, the, the walls are lined with velvet. <laughs> the air conditioning is fierce, right. which I will never complain about. Right. This room feels like you know when you're 
on a gay cruise mm-hmm. and you've been doing drugs all night right. and it's like 90 degrees and humid and then you come back to the room and you set the AC <laughs> to like Two. 40 degrees Fahrenheit, that's what it feels like in here and I love it. Now the question is, did you do the drugs before you got here? <laughs> today, today, no. Today, no. Those days are over. <laughs> So again, so Adam is here with me. You know, there we have, we just had the conversation of what it's like when two comedians actually talk about stuff that, you know, I, I think that it's, it is imperative that people know that the work that we both do in our, when we do do our things, we, we're working. Yeah. That shit's work. So Adam. Tre- tremendous amount of work. If, if I'm just going to show up at someone else's show and do a 10 minute set, mm-hmm. that's not so much work. I have to prepare and figure yeah. out what jokes I want to do. Maybe right. I want to try something new. What's work is when I have to do 45 or an hour or when I have to run a show mm-hmm. where there's other comics involved and then half the show is an auction and I have to be the auctioneer and mm-hmm. then like that shit well, takes that, weeks of planning. M- well, the MC, like especially for events, is Ugh. people don't understand that that's like, you know, especially when you don't have a team of writers. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you know, it's not like you're going to do the Oscars where there's a whole room full of people writing jokes for you. Yeah. You have to come up with your conversation I, style. You have to I think am about my what team. you want to do. You are your Me team. Me and my dog. That's yeah. my team. Oh, your dog. I love that. Um, so, you know, so I have Adam here, and it's been fun because, you know, one of the things that we discovered in our last conversation is that we are, you know, how there is a there's a divisive element in everything that we try to do as artists. There's always somebody that thinks that our art's not right. There are people that don't like us because we are artists like them. <laughs> well, there are people who are you know? manipulative, and there are people that are really manipulative. and try to divide and conquer. Yeah, and and so we were both a victim of that, and so we wound up spending, I guess, many years not ever interacting like we should have. I thought had. you didn't like me, and you thought I didn't like yeah. you. Yeah, and you know, and neither and of those things were really true at all. And the well, okay, I'll take it back. I wasn't you a really big fan. Like I really wasn't a big fan when I first met you with the balls out. But that was because my I balls was, were not. Well, out. you know what I mean. I was holding my balls you very daintily. <laughs> you were cuffing, but but you you know, but I but that was because I was like the older comedian having this moment. And I'm like, what is this queen doing? That that's where my I guess sense of dislike was for you. But it wasn't because of anything that you'd have done or said to me. Right. It was just like you it know, was a shady queen, impression. like mm, this bitch, you know. Right. But. Over the years, we never ever really interacted after that because you kind of you were separate and I was separate, and then the the intersections of people that we knew or know, two specifically, like one was kind of responsible for being very divisive, and one was the most responsible for bringing us together. Yeah, and so and it was interesting because it was one of those things. It was another comedian, other comedians, but this other comedian who brought us together was one of those people that when I as long as I'd known her, would never associate herself with people that were of bad energy and bad ilk. Right. And when she told me that you guys were roommates, I was like, really? I was like, well, what is she seeing in him? And then it was like, and then it was after that that I realized, first of all, you know, life is too short to be hating on folks if you don't have a reason to. And then it was like, that's when we started to reconnect. And then it was like- We're talking about Kareth Foster, by the way. She was my my roommate for a year and a dear friend of both both of ours. And it was so funny because that was the reason now that we were able to have not only a good connection, we go see theater sometimes together Mm -hmm. and we, we can interact professionally together. And it is so nice because there aren't that many of us 
that are left because you know we're part of the original crews. I you know agree. What I'm we're the OGs. We're the OGs. I see and these young ones, honey. I I look in Time Out New York every week at the LGBTQ section. Mm-hmm. Online, of course, because yeah. nobody reads the print version exactly. anymore. It's and, 9,000 venues <laughs> now. Like, what the fuck? And it's always like, gay comedian powerhouse blah, blah, blah is going to be at the Stonewall doing his one-man show. And I'm like, who the f*** is this? And I'm not even I'm not even reading them. Like, he it's might like, be amazing. You? He might be a fabulous comedian. Never, but the I fact that I don't know anyone's name anymore, we all knew each other. Others' names. We intimately. Knew. I knew your jokes. Yes. I, I could do everyone else's set as well as they could do it and vice mm-hmm. versa. Like, we just, we all traveled in this very small universe. Yeah. And I feel like... This is a function of getting old. It's a function of getting old. The new it's ones also keep a function coming. of getting accepted. Right. Because, you know, let's face it. When you and I were in the throes of our comedy lives, the, the early on stages, we were there. At least I know I was there long before Ellen became the Ellen show. I, right. Like, actually, my show that I did at Starlight started the same month as Ellen's, and I danced before Ellen was dancing, coming hey out now. on stage, you know? You but I try not to bring that up anymore because, you know, she's doing her thing and I don't want to be a hater. But, you know, <laughs> but we, you know, we were in a, a, a very small, tight cocoon of people that even... Like we are the 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 descendants of the Bob Smiths. I was just going to say that there were like ten people, Judy Goals, right? That I remember seeing way back when, when I was thinking about being a comedian and going, "Wow, those are some very interesting characters." Right. And Bob Smith, Danny McWilliams, yes, um, Danny, Eddie, um, Uh, wrong with me. I want to say Cibrian, but that's not him. No. Know him, oh, beautiful God, bear with a gorgeous beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Safardi, Eddie, yes. Sa- Eddie Safardi, 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 uh, and and Jaffe Cohen. And Jaffe I mean, th- Cohen. those were the funny gay males, and they were for a long time the only out gay men in stand up. In stand up, I guess you could include Mario Cantone, but he was doing more character stuff. He wasn't really, and he was seeing himself as an actor performer yeah. more so than just a comedian. Right, but he would do his sets and, and kill. Yeah, and, st- and now he does them and kills. Yeah, he's amazing. So it's you know, so we kind of we are the descendants of that. We were like more like the first generational group out of those people that were able to be bold enough to stand on stage, be out, be gay, and have shows. Yeah, because that wasn't happening, and not right. have to be in the only you know <laughs> the only uh, horse in town. We didn't have to ride that one. Right. We had our own horses, and so it's interesting now because. The way that it's evolved is like it's becoming a lot more pervasive, and that's wonderful. But then, what do we do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, we still funny. (laughs) What's true, but also what's changed is, you know, in the early days, my act was basically I'm gay. Like that was my act, especially with straight crowds. And now it's there are stand up comedians who happen to be gay. But they may never mention it. Todd Glass came out years ago. I don't think he's got a single gay joke in his act. It's just he's still Todd Glass. Uh-huh. You know? And and I think that's great and it speaks to the progress we've made. Right. But it means that like I'm no longer gonna get a a laugh by going out in front of a straight audience and being like, look at me, I'm so gay, you know. And 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 part of that was kind of a minstrel show, and I'm glad that that's not the thing anymore. But in the early days, it was yeah. pretty easy. To I mean, get you, you're talking to the queen with the boa. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, exactly. and I'll still bring my goddamn boa because well, you, you look know fabulous what? Fabulous in it. I'm not gonna give my boa away because you people think that it's, it's too gay. You know what? 
It's like right. this is how I made it my my moment. And you know, and I I think like gosh, man. It's like I you know, your career. Like when you decided when when was it that you decided you were going to pursue comedy? Like when did it really like just set in that <clears> this <throat> is not Well, I know, started way too late for one thing. Uh, you and I, I both. We, we I made it out of my twenties before ever doing a comedy show. Oh, you didn't. You were in your thirties when you started. Yep. Oh, I was a. I think you know this. I was a news producer for six years yeah. at Fox News Channel, wanting to die every day, wanting to die. That was like most of my twenties. Um, you know, it was <laughs> no wonder you started doing comedy. Yeah. Well, so I was miserable and. I left to go be a producer at WABC thinking now I will okay. be happy mm-hmm. because ABC is a fabulous network yeah. and there's no more of the right-wing bullshit and the homophobia and so forth. And I hated it more. Wow. I just didn't want to be a, a line producer. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to sit there all day at a computer uh, writing scripts that someone else was going to read on camera. Right. You know, I have a passion for news, but I, I'm not a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. Yeah. I want to be on the camera. Okay. I want to be on camera or on stage. And I just, I had, <laughs> I had grown up being like Little Miss Musical Theater my whole life. Yeah. When I was eight years old, I did community theater. And all through middle school, high school, college, that was my jam. Mm-hmm. So then you turn 22 and you graduate from college and it just stops. And it stopped for, for 10 years. Wow. The only thing I ever did was sometimes I would go down to Rose's Turn, mm-hmm. this beloved, legendary, now defunct piano Ooh. bar in the West Village, and I would get up and I would sing at the microphone. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was my only performing outlet in New York until uh, I'm at WABC and I'm like taking antidepressants to get myself out of bed. Like that's how unhappy I was working there. Wow. And like couldn't make a dentist appointment because it was too much effort. Do you know, have you ever been wow. that depressed? I'm you... kind of, I'm in that place sort You're, of now. Right? Today. Yeah. yeah. You know? It's, it's, ho- it's, it's horrible. It's very hard. It really is. And I just thought I need to do something radical to blow up my life. For years, I had found myself writing material in my head and I didn't know what it was for. I didn't even call it material. I would just be at the gym or in the shower, or any time I was doing something kind of mindless, my brain would start going, remember when that funny thing happened to me? I wonder if I were to ever tell that story, how I would tell it. Would I say this or no? I would say it this way. Oh, but I would also bring up that, and then I would connect it to that. And I was writing stand-up in my head for a couple years that I didn't know what it was or what it was for. It was just starting to percolate. And somewhere in that year that I was, well, I was at WABC for six months, mm-hmm. It was 2003 and somewhere, or 2002, somewhere in that year, I just said, I want to, I want to try stand-up comedy. What I ended up doing is quitting my job with no other job to go to. <laughs> what? And it was a good job in terms of like, I was making money more money the whole than I've shmear. ever made before or since. I've never made as much as I was making there. But you were miserable? But I was working 50 to 60 hours a week. And miserable. Depressed. And I just said, I need to take some time off. So for six months, I didn't have a job. I, you know, I, I did Cobra mm-hmm. for my benefits, and I um, partied a lot and broke up with my boyfriend, who I'd been with for four years, and wrote material, wrote jokes, with the idea that at some point I was going to get on stage and do this. I wasn't under the delusion that I could somehow make a living doing this mm-hmm. anytime soon, but I just was like, I'll do stand-up, and then that will get me to whatever I'm supposed to be next. That'll right. be the bridge. 
So I looked in backstage, mm-hmm. and I found uh, uh, an ad for a bringer show at the old Gotham Comedy Club. Mm-hmm. It was one of Jessica Kirsten's shows. Oh, Jessica. And Who I'm I'm working very hard to get to be a part of this as well. Oh, yeah. She's I amazing. love her. She's amazing. I love Crazy Broad, too. Love her. Okay. And I showed up, and I did it. It was seven minutes. I had mm-hmm. to bring ten people, and I was instantly hooked. Yeah. And it's... I just kept coming back every week and doing the bringer show or, you know, as often as I could get ten people. Ten people to see, come in and see it. And see, this is the thing that people don't realize in the early moments when we're discovering ourselves as comedians and as performers that, you know, we do have to do a lot of bringer shows. And what happens is is that, you know, it's about you rehearsing that damn seven minutes over and over again until you feel like it's perfect then you get into the scenario where you can get these 10 people to show up and it's like okay but the next time i got to do this again and now i got to find 10 more people because what happens is you don't have a lot of material and no. so and so and so even if you have loyal friends they're like i don't want to hear these same exactly well it's so funny when i think back now i would take the entire day off from work mm-hmm because by then I had, um, so I started working as a cocktail waiter at Barrage, which is this little gay bar uh, yeah. in my neighborhood. And so I did that a couple days a week. And then a friend of mine got me a job uh, freelance clerking at the New York Times, which eventually led to a full-time job that I did for five years and right. loved very much. That's mm-hmm. my favorite day job I've ever had was working for the Times. But um, I would take the entire day off on a night when I was doing my seven <laughs> minutes. Like that's how that's how much it, I needed to prepare and just be like quiet all day. I, and you see, you're making me remember, I remember the very first time that I did, I took a class. This was when I was in Austin and I took a class with this guy, uh, Cox, that's his last name. Damn, mm. I can't remember his first name. K-O-X. C-O-X, I'm sorry. Um, and he, um, you know, we have the you know, six, eight weeks that you come in and you work on your material and, you you know, the mic is already set up for you. So you just walk up to the mic and you have your first moment and he just like lets you talk. And then he goes, hmm, that's interesting. That's funny. That's interesting. That's funny. This could be really funny if you do this. And that was how it started. And so that first, you know, thing where you had to you did the, the tickets to get your friends to come. It was, um, oh, God, it was in Austin and the laugh. Yeah, the laugh stop. Laugh stop. That's the name of the club. And the night before, I was walking up and down my neighborhood. I lived in Austin, South Austin. I was walking up and down the neighborhood, smoking a cigarette. Never smoked cigarettes before. <laughs> smoking cigarettes, just doing it over and over and over again. Just like, please, God, don't let me suck. Right. <laughs> that was all I wanted. And it was the same thing. After that, the first initial joke worked. It was like, Oh, yeah. Give me this microphone. Boom. And then you're like, I feel this. I feel this very strong. It's a real high. It's a high. My legs used to shake uh, when I was on stage, not because I was nervous, but Mm -hmm. because there was so much adrenaline adrenaline pumping through me. It was such a high. I wish I still felt that. I don't feel that anymore. What do you mean you don't feel that anymore? Well, I don't. That's why I'm retiring. You know I'm done at the end of this year. Stop lying. I am done. No, you are not. Keith, I wrote a very long Yeah, I read it. No- <laughs> like, you think it's bullshit? Him, him and Barbara Streisand. I promise you they 100%, kn- as God is my witness. Now, if next year someone says, listen, <laughs> here's $5,000, mm-hmm. of course I'm not going to say no to like a ridiculous amount of money. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not quitting 
performing, period. Just I'm not... still going to have my podcast. Right. If somebody says, hey, you'd be perfect for my web series, mm -hmm. I'm there. Right. I just don't want to do stand-up anymore. Oh. I have no... There's no joy in it for me anymore. It feels, At all? No, it feels really pointless. Really? Why am I having you on my show then? I'm, I'm, just I'm sorry to be a, de a Debbie Downer. It <laughs> doesn't I matter. I think if, if, it's, if it works for you or for anyone else, they mm -hmm. should absolutely keep doing it. Yeah. I got to a point. Here's how it feels to me right now when I'm on stage, and it's felt this way for several years. It feels like I'm doing a magic trick, and it's a pretty decent trick. You know, I say a, a set of words in just the right way, and People I get laugh. a response. I get laughter. But it's the same fucking trick over and over and over again. It doesn't mm. matter how many different jokes it is. It can be a thousand different jokes. It's the same trick. It's like, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, ha, 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 ha. Mm. That rhythm is so, um, it's just so played out for me. And, and I've always preferred storytelling to jokes exactly in the beginning when i started i don't know if you remember like i would do like two jokes in mm -hmm. a 10 minute set yeah because <laughs> there was like two very long stories. stories and then over the years i learned like oh no you can't do that you have to you have to hit a punchline every 30 seconds or you're going to lose the crowd right so then i started like chopping it up and, and writing shorter bits but i love um i love a, a, a full story i love when something isn't just funny but it's also poignant and it right. also means something um, the thing I'm most proud of that I've done over the, the last 15 years is not my comedy album. It's my uh, my cabaret show that I did at the Duplex. Yeah. Um, you got to sing. I got to sing and I got to tell the story of my life and it wasn't funny the whole time. It wasn't supposed to be. Isn't it the best though? It's great. You know, I, again, not to turn it back to me because this is about it's Adam all Sank, about you. But it's always about me too. But like I, I have that same thing when I think about you know, I've I've done two one person shows and You're so politically correct. I know, you know. But like I, I one I, gender neutral person show. <laughs> one gender neutral person who, you know one <laughs> I you know the funny thing is is like I always have the one person show. It's a one man show. <laughs> Whatever you, whatever I can't, because I'm a man and it was me. One so, queen show. One queen show. A uh, one gay show. And um, I, I remember being very stressed about the fact that I was planning on telling stories about my life that I had not really ever shared on stage before, in terms of like, do you, like my last show when I was talking about you know my parents passing away mm. and how I tried to find I found the funny in that, but I found the funny because Joan Rivers told me to find the funny. Yes. You know what I'm saying? But that Find story, the funny, Keith. Exactly. Uh, exactly the words was, if you can find a sliver of laughter in the middle of your tragedy, you'll survive it. That's what she said to me. And, and that's then what three I days love of, about her. She, yeah. Because she, Joan made Holocaust jokes and Joan made AIDS jokes. 9-11 jokes. 9-11 <laughs> jokes. And, and whenever people say like, you can't joke about that, it's like, no, you have, have to, to joke, joke about, about that. that. That's how we, that's how we get through that. shit. So let's get back to this, you're retiring. <laughs> you, this, you just said something that I thought was very interesting and I don't understand why you would look at the retirement from quote unquote comedy. I, you're not retiring from performing. It's like, well then why don't you just pursue more of the one person energy? Well, let me, first of all, let me be completely transparent. 
some of it is uh, the comedy world has decided this for me. It's not just that I'm like, I'm walking away from all this. I, I'm, I'm rarely booked nowadays. W- where I get booked is for corporate events mm-hmm. that uh, either I've done before and they've been very successful or someone in at an organization heard about me from another organization and they're right. like, we want you to be our host and our auctioneer. Right. I do a lot of these kinds of things okay. and, and they pay very well. Um, and it's nice to be do, doing good, you know, raising mm-hmm. money for nonprofit and for charity and so forth. But um, they are a grind. Yeah. They are a tremendous grind. They are not fun for me in any way. Um, mm. I go online weeks beforehand and do research on the organization and the people that are going to be there so I can find something to talk about that they're going to find funny that is squeaky clean and G-rated and... It's just not, yeah. it's not fun for me at all. Yeah. Um, I'm not getting booked at any clubs in New York anymore. I'm, I'm barely getting booked on people who produce their own shows, people yeah. like you, comedy friends of mine. Yeah. That's barely happening nowadays. Because <laughs> we, we can't afford to produce anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And when it, but when it does happen, when someone says like, hey, want to do my show, my first instinct is always yes. Mm-hmm. And then the night of, I'm like, <laughs> oh, fuck, I just want to stay at home and mm-hmm. watch TV and like lay here with my dog. Yeah. And, and some of it's just age, mm-hmm. but I don't have that hunger anymore. Mm-hmm. And truly, going out to a club and doing 10 minutes on stage and getting and killing right. doesn't really feel different anymore than doing it and bombing. They feel the same to me. Either way, wow. it's just kind of a chore. You don't wow. get paid. You, what do yeah. you get? Twenty bucks, twenty-five bucks. It's nothing. It's peanuts. Car fare. It's, yeah, yeah, after you pay taxi and and for your drink, like mm-hmm. you, you lost money. Uh, it's it's just kind of like I feel like it's time, and I don't want to be that sixty-year-old comedian who comes out at midnight mm. and does a five-minute check spot set because someone feels bad for him, and the audience is like, "Oh, this is uncomfortable." Yeah. I'm, I'm We're right now. That. I'm the best comedian I'll ever be. I will never be better than I am right now. I believe that. You can put me up at any show, and I will hold my own or kill. Mm-hmm. So let's let's get out with some dignity. All let's right. get out at a time when I feel like there's still someone that is interested. In, in you seeing me and hearing me. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all, this, uh, we're getting, it's getting too long. Adam, we're going too hard. We're, we're going, going too hard. We got to bring it back. Going we're, over. Bring, we're, we're going over. We're running over. Uh, this, you know, this is going to have to be a two part conversation. So please stay tuned for the second part of my conversation with the amazing and wonderful Adam Sank. I'll be back.